I want to do that stuff to improve every acre. And actually, at, t- at some point here in the next couple of years, I want to bring that down in less than an acre. I want to know every foot of my soil, every foot of the piece of land and what it can do for me. Welcome to Croptastic, the Interplant podcast where your host, Shelley Aronov, explores the global future of agriculture and food. First-generation Kansas farmer Matt Turek of DY Farms joins the podcast this episode. Matt shares his story with Shelley and gives his take on farming, ag tech, and the future of agriculture. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Croptastic, the podcast by Interplant. Today's guest is Matt Turek. He's a kind of first-generation farmer in Kansas. Matt, uh, thank you so much for being here today. Hey, thank you for having me. So let's start with the story. Tell us um, where did you start and uh, how did you start your own farm, which okay. is so unique. <laughs> well, thank you. And I, I want to say thank you guys for having me on. And, and it's been a pleasure to uh, get to meet all of you guys and, and to work with you all. Um, I'm so excited to uh, uh, move forward and, and, and see what you guys have to offer and what I can bring to you guys as well. So let's get started. So what I, I started farming with my family in eastern Colorado. A uh, little town called Deer Trail. It's uh, in the Eastern Plains, very desolate. We called ourselves a high desert. So the elevation out there was about 5,287 feet, but we hardly ever got any rain. Nine, like I said, nine to 11 inches of rain a year. Hard to grow crops. About all we grew out there was winter wheat. And my my mother, who uh, grew up in the northeast corner of Kansas here, um, we would come back and visit her family and their, what they had for farm ground. And like I said, it was um, everything grew and it was green and it was lush and and uh, I got a lot of rain. And I, I just determined that I did not want to farm in, in eastern Colorado when uh, I seen greener pastures, if you want to call it that. Literally. Uh, <laughs> and so I packed up the family. Uh, it's been 10 years ago now actually 2013 day after thanksgiving in 2013 and um moved well we started searching for for a place to to, to land and uh, ended up settling here in in northeast kansas a little town called valley falls we sold 500 acres in colorado and bought 160 here uh that kind of gives you an idea on the amount of money that it takes to exchange from eastern colorado land to northeast kansas land i brought 50 head of cattle and 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 160 acres and started from scratch um, in Colorado, I was farming with all my my parents' equipment with that on that 500 acres I had. So I didn't own any equipment. Um, so when I moved here, I, you know, started trying to find equipment and planters and tractors and sprayers and bought all that stuff. Went into a tremendous amount of debt to get started. To be honest, um, everything I owned, I kept. To, I always joked and said that everything I own <laughs> is owned by the bank still. <laughs> and that that's the only way you can get started, right? It's either you inherit it. Or yes. you buy it. Yeah, it's That's funny. We, farming is second generation thing or third. Right. We we talk all the time jokingly around here that you either bury it or marry it to get into farming. Right. Um <laughs> and uh <laughs> there's a lot of truth to that. Okay. There's yeah. a lot of truth to that. <laughs> but um we started out with 160 acres of 50 head of cattle and um grew grew the, the farm ground. Every year, you know, I um, just I, I started working with a co-op that was local and did some custom spraying for them, and that helped me uh, cash flow things and get my feet on the ground and meet people in the area. And um, it just seemed like 
it just seemed to be honest with you, it seemed like the good Lord just put me in the right place. Things started falling into place every year. Just somebody come to me and I would, I would, uh, they would ask me if I wanted to farm their land and then I would meet somebody somewhere and we would talk and I would be interested in farming for them. And then, you know, they would call my landlords that I've farmed with before and ask them how I was doing. And, and I seem obviously got good reviews and the farm just kept growing. That's amazing. Um, and I ended up running into a neighbor down the road. It was him and his, him and his dad that were farming and he's running, he's about 56 now. And his dad was 88 and they were farming around, oh, 2000 acres total probably. And, um, he came to me, we became he ended up becoming really good friends. And uh, he came to me and said, Matt, I'm going to slow down. I just can't keep up. My 88 year old dad is, is having trouble still getting around and farming, but he just right. couldn't do as much as he normally could. So he slowly started releasing land to me. And um, last year we bought all their equipment and I'm farming pretty much all their land. So how large is your operation today? About 3,200 acres. That's amazing. Yes. Yeah. And I think this year, starting 2023, is the first year that I didn't actually add any acres to my operation. So I just feel like at this time, I kind of want to stop expanding and start performing, if that makes mm -hmm. sense. It's tough to keep performing when you're doubling your acres every year. And I know that that may not seem big from 160 to 300 to 600 and on, but when you're trying to perform better and you're using all your cash up to grow your operation, it becomes a, 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 a financial challenge, I guess would be the way to put it. And um, also, I'm, I mean, just to Matt, your story is so unique because it's rare, uh, to be honest. So it brings up so many questions. I, I'm sure. <laughs> and, you know, I, I've said this story a few times, a few hundred times, probably, because yeah. I everybody always wants to know how you ended up where you are and how'd you get here? Yeah. And, I'm very humble about it. I I um I, I don't like to talk about myself a lot. So I I'm proud of where I, I am and proud of where I came from and where I'm at now. But I know in farming, she it can be a it can be a cruel, cruel world. It's tough, tough farming. Yeah. You know, I um I never feel like I'm out of the woods. <laughs> I feel something. like there's always a challenge ahead of me, I guess. I'll, um every time you grow your operation. I mean, I'm just wondering what that experience is like when you get new land that's probably not super close to where you are, that you don't know. Does it actually perform the same as the land that you know, or is there a learning curve every time in addition to more inputs, more equipment, right? more everything? How does that happen? Yes. So there's, you're right. There is a learning curve to it all. Um, and I think some of the land you get from people depends on how it was treated prior to you. I would say, I don't, I don't know if you could, if I could sit down and say, you know, every acre I gained would be the same as the other acre I got from the next landlord. Everybody kind of handles their land differently. That's mm -hmm. what's very unique about farming and farmers in general. I would say there was a definite learning curve when I got from, when I got over a thousand acres, when I started getting over a thousand acres, the time it took was a lot higher and the workload was a lot more. I started realizing that I was going to have to, at some point, hire somebody to work with me. Because up to um, a thousand was you? Up to, uh, I'll be honest with you, up to about uh, 1,700, it was me wow. by myself. Wow. Yes. I mean, I had my wife and my kids around and, and my wife at the time had a full-time job. And um, so she would help on the weekends and when she got off work and the kids would help 
obviously on the weekends and and um we have a, a 11 year old boy now and a, a 19 year old girl so they're great to help they're great help so i will never talk badly right. about them and I, i'm so glad that they're they want to be they want to help and come back when they can but so, you got to a point where you had to set it up as a business. You could yes, it, it changed. It went from I joke, I jokingly say it went from a hobby farm to an actual farm. <laughs> but um it, it went to a real a real operation and and then you then you're paying wages and you know you're trying to figure out insurance and and it's it just changes the dynamic of the operation. And Matt, I'm gonna I'm gonna jump in real quick because you are a humble guy, but I want to draw you out a little bit because you and I have had a couple of good conversations, and I really want to dig in because I think your story is so instructive, and uh, and I want to dig into the secret of your success because it's no small feat, going you know doubling your farm acreage every year over ten years, going from 160 to like 3,500 acres is no small feat. What's the What's the secret of your success? Like walk me through some of the things you did that that helped you help you do that amazing thing. So I would have to say some of the secrets, I don't know if I could even consider them secrets. One thing we talked about is that I I felt like I always had to surround myself with people that were knowledgeable and things that I wasn't. I, I found a really good loan institution and a loan officer. And he's been willing to work with me and he's been behind me and he's given me great ideas and helping support my decisions of growing my operation and what to add next. And, um, you know, I felt that's been a huge benefit. And I think that's probably one of the biggest things for growing the operation and trying to become a sustainable operation is the ability to be able to have a loan officer or a bank that will stand behind you as they're, they got to be willing to take the risk that you're willing to take. Um, and, and that stands a lot for the person, you know, I mean, when, when, when you go to a bank and start out, when you move 500 miles from where you lived originally to here, without anybody, you know, you have no name for yourself at all. You're just Joe blow on the street. It, it takes a lot for somebody to step out and want to loan you a million dollars. Yeah. That makes total sense. Um, but help me out because when you like you were talking about your farm a little bit, and I and, and I think it's important for people to understand it's not it's not a straight contiguous piece of land that's easy to farm, right? It, there, as you described it to me, there's some unique challenges, and I think you listed off a couple like trees and 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 high tension wires and creek beds. So walk me through because there was like I I think definitely the capital side of it is important, but your approach to managing the type of land you had was super interesting and super innovative. So I'd love to draw you out and talk yeah, a little bit yeah. about that too. Yeah. So, so obviously it's, we do a hundred percent no-till around here. It's no-till. It's a lot of the ground that I farm has been in no-till for 20, 30 years, probably now this Northeast corner of Kansas, uh, you know, it's not like any other part of Kansas. To be honest with you, if you think most people think of Kansas, they think of the flat plains and it's, you know, you can see for miles. That's not what the northeast corner of Kansas is like. You know, we're we're 20 miles from the Missouri River. So we got lots of hills, rolling hills, steep hills, um, loaded with trees, uh, lots of creeks, lots of rivers. Um, so so the farm ground's very, very broken up. I would say the average acres. We have like average size of a field would be 40 to 50 acres, probably. 
you know, so, so if you figure three, 3,500 acres, 3,200 acres in 40, 50 field, that's a lot of fields. <laughs> so, and like we were talking, a lot of those fields are surrounded by a county road, which almost always has a power line going down it. And it's all above ground power lines. They're not underground. So there's poles. And I can guarantee you every field at least has one side of the field, if not two, with tree rows on them. Um, I guess way back in, we did a little history lesson, but way back in like the 30s and 40s, when the, when the, it was mainly the Germans took over a lot of this area here, they planted what they called hedgerows for, for, for perimeter boundary to determine who, where your property line is. And a hedgerow is the type of tree. It's a tree. It's a hedge tree. And they planted those at the perimeter and the boundary of the property to, to distinguish the line. So these trees have been here for, you know, hundred, hundred years almost or more. Before GPS, they had trees. <laughs> they didn't have GPS trackers. They had these trees. No GPS tracking. None of that. Believe it or not, though, these, these farmers back then, they could drive straight lines. I'm here to tell you, there ain't a hedgerow that's crooked. I can tell you that right now. <laughs> I believe it. It was probably hard, though. But yeah. Oh, absolutely. It was hard. I can imagine that farming back then is way different than now, for sure. So Matt, when you say you want to focus on improving your operations now instead of more scale, what are you looking at in order in order to do that? Yeah. So I, I keep telling myself and everybody I work with that I want to make every acre I have not necessarily produce better. Like I, I not always getting a higher yield is the right answer. So I want it to give me That's a, better... a controversial statement in the U.S. Uh, absolutely, it is. I mean, uh, most farmers say, you know, I just need to produce more. I just need to get my yields up, mm-hmm. which there is some truth to that. I can't deny that. And I, I may get crucified for that, but uh, that's okay. I, I got broad shoulders. I can take it. I, I think it comes down to more on return on investment. And there's a lot more farmers looking at that. When you hear people talk about ROI. I want to do things like like drone applications. I want to be able to do things like a lot of imagery stuff, um, NDVI imagery. There's there's even better imagery than that now, and um, I want to do that stuff to improve every acre. And actually, at t- at some point here in the next couple of years, I want to bring that down in less than an acre. I want to know every foot of my soil, every foot of the piece of land, and what it can do for me. I mean, I would say between biologicals, different types of soil testing, drone application work, seed technology, all that stuff is stuff that I feel that I can do to make my operation be more, more efficient. It's probably the way to describe it. And that, and that's kind of the interesting thing for me, because we were talking with Shelly just a little bit before we started recording. And I was saying that that's, for me, that's kind of your superpower, right? Is your, your, is your interest in pretty much everything and seeing how uh, it'll improve because you describe that patchwork of fields, and it's interesting that you've you've adapted different methodologies for each for the topography that you want. Right? If you're if you have a field that's bound by trees and high, high tension wires, you're probably not going to spray it with uh, with an airplane, right? So you got to figure out uh, how you're going to do that. So share a little bit about that, and then how you're how you're breaking those down by, by zones and shrinking your zones. Cause that's, that's a really, again, that's your superpower, like your ability to approach that with a real analytical point of view and apply what works in, in different areas. So I would say 
these fields are not big, but they still do, do get flown with planes. Um, mainly because that was the, up until this drone stuff has really started taking off the last couple of years. That was about all we had. There was a couple of guys flying around with helicopters, but they were usually so busy that they just couldn't get over everything as fast as you needed. And that was the benefit to the plane is the plane can cover a lot of acres in a day. Um, and I'm not here to knock planes. Um, I still believe there is a, a purpose for these planes and that, that these drones are just another tool in your toolbox is what I say. This drone was not built. These drones were not built to replace the airplane or the helicopter. You know, I think um, kind of what you were saying, what we ran into is th these, these pilots are risking their lives getting as close as they do to the edge of the fields with the, with the trees or the power lines there anyway. And it seems like every oh, two to three years, you hear of a plane crashing somewhere around here. And so most of the time the pilot lives, but there's been a few times the pilots haven't. And, and that's, that's disheartening and sad to see, especially if it happened on your farm and you're the one that called in this plane to have him fly it. So I think that's kind of where we've been pushing more for this drone stuff. Now that the technology is getting there, we're taking these drones now and we have certain drones that will just do the, the spraying application over the field. And then we have other drones that will do scouting. Um, they'll come over, they'll, they'll take images over the fields. They'll give you an idea of weed pressure, obviously insect pressure. They'll give you what they see for any nutrient deficiencies or diseases. And then you can take that map that they give you and build your own spraying map for your drone off of that. And that would probably be the drone portion of it and how that works. And maybe before I move on after that, I, we can talk about that a little more if you guys want. <laughs> no, I'm just interested in how you're approaching the different zones. Because you were talking about doing fertilizer overlays and fertility overlays. Yes, and, yes. And, 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 that, and that, of, that's where I was going to go next. So yeah. we take, I take, right now I'm doing grid sampling on, uh, on every acre of farm ground that I get. Um, whether I'm renting it or I own it, I, I grid sample it. And that would be, so when I say that, you take it and we're gridding every there's a guy running around on an ATV and he, he takes a soil sample every acre of land. And every year? Ev every three years. Okay. Every three years. So he'll go out, he'll pull a grid, he'll pull a soil sample on every acre of land. Then he takes that back, we get an analysis done on it, and he builds a map that has the fertility zones in it, where you're deficient, where you got too much. Um, where you're just about right. And, and we build a fertility map to, to put fertilizer onto that property or, or onto that piece of dirt by those, those grid samples. So then you plant, you plant corn in that field and you harvest corn off of that. Then you take that yield map off of that field that you grid sampled and you overlay that onto the, on top of your soil sample map. And then that gives you a yield of well, what it gives you is it gives you what they call removal rate, which is the amount of fertilizer you removed off of that property out of the grain that you took off of it by the yield it produced. That's how you fertilize for the next two years without having to pull a soil sample. Does that make sense? Yeah. Okay. That's, that's actually very well described. It's a great description of how the process works today. Okay. So we would do that. And then we would overlay that, that um, fertility map on top of that. With that, with your yield map, 
then for the next year, we would build uh, a, a fertilizer map off of those two and based off of the yield you produced off the farm to make sure that you're not depleting the soil. We actually want to, what we call do a build program the next two years is to try to put as much as you take off plus a little extra just so that you know you're not depleting the soil. And the, the reason we do that too is <laughs> farming is a gamble, right? You're throwing the dice out there and hoping it produces, you know, 200 bushel corn. And maybe if the weather treats you right, you may produce 220 bushel or 250 bushel corn. Well, you, if you don't have that build out there where you're giving it a little extra every year, then maybe it's deficient in that phosphorus or potassium or sulfur that it needed and it won't produce that because it didn't have it. It's kind of amazing because as you describe it, I, I have to kind of have to jump in and talk about how the future is going to look like, right? And and the reality is that we're talking about every one of your plants being able to communicate and all of this guesswork is going to be out, right? There's no more averaging one sample over an acre, which is amazing, by the way, because usually it's not one an acre, but even one an acre is so much less than what you can have uh, in the future. So oh, I know. To think how it's going to all unfold in the next 10 years. Yeah. Yeah. That's when I found you guys. I was, I was like, this, this is, this is the wave of the future. This is where we're going. And I so want to be part of that. So would you describe the future? Like, let's assume every individual plant, right? 40,000 plants of corn an acre and 120,000 soybeans telling you all of the different needs. What changes in your operation? Wow. <laughs> Um, Blue sky. Quite, quite a bit changes. I, I, I feel quite a bit would change. So I think um, some of the guesswork, like we just were talking about, will change. I think we can be way more efficient on on fer fertility and fertilizer usage, and only giving it to the crop when it needs it. I think we can also, in the big picture, I think it's going to save the farmer a lot of money because the challenge with when you're farming 3000 acres of land is you, you don't know what field needs what at that time until it shows it's deficient. And then at that point, it's too late. The damage is already done. It already robbed you yield. Now I know yield and I speak earlier that yields, not everything, but yeah, I don't want you it don't to lose yield either. Yeah. Right. You don't I want mean, to under nutrient under fertilize your crop. Right. Yes. And I don't want to, I don't want to be the guy, I don't want to be the one hindering my crop from producing the maximum potential it can. Right. If mother nature doesn't help me, then I, I have no control over that, but everything else I can control. So, I mean, I think it's going to change that. I think, um, and when I say big picture, it's going to save the farmer money. As I think as these plants are communicating with us and telling us we need this, or we got disease in here, we don't spray the whole field. We don't fertilize the whole field we just fertilize the areas that need it right and i think i don't know this this these these plants talking to us is i walk in my fields every year multiple times a year and <laughs> it's kind of like talking to your favorite dog or animal or cat if you got one and going i wish you could tell me what's wrong with you today <laughs> i know you don't feel good but i don't i can't see anything <laughs> <laughs> or yeah that's true matt before we wrap up tell me what is your goal 
what 10 years, 20 years from now for your future? What is your goal? Oh, wow. Um, so we always try to base out five to 10 years when we talk financials Ooh, and farm that's operations. The that's the normal planning time. That's amazing. yes. Yes. And, um, my wife and I, we've got a couple of businesses we got going on. I'm hoping to get these businesses growing, get them sustainable. Um, they're all agriculture related. I wanted, I, I kind of want to get my farm in to where it is right now, acre wise. And I want to keep producing. I want every acre to be more efficient for me and, and produce its, its maximum potential. I think we're going to be moving to more autonomous stuff, which is a whole nother conversation. Mm-hmm which then changes my workload as, as the farmer. Um, if you're not sitting in the tractor cab, that changes things tremendously. It, there is a lot, you know, um, the problem with <laughs> the problem with making everything autonomous is the farmer loves the farm. That's the whole reason he's doing it. So you take that away and that changes a lot too. I, I, I think about that as I tell you that and I go, man, I may miss sitting in the tractor. <laughs> still feed the cabin every once in a while. It's not, not allowed, right? <laughs> right. Absolutely. Just Absolutely. gives you the optionality. Yeah. One but I think I think with that and and one other thing, I mean, with these the ge- genetics moving into these plants and the way they can produce and handle stress and and the ability for these plants to talk to us and tell us what they need. I think as we lose acres to to urban sprawl and whatnot, I still think we're going to be able to produce what we need due to these better technologies. It's, I agree with you. I think it's an exciting time and to see it told from your perspective, which is such a rare one. I don't know if all of our listeners know um, how few farmers start from scratch and build their operation year by year. It's really admirable. Thank you so much for joining us today and telling your story here. Well, thank you. And it's been a pleasure. And and I, I'm so excited to keep working with you guys and, and, and I'm excited to see what the future has for, for, for Interplant, for sure. And that'll do it for this episode of CropTastic. Thank you again to Matt Turek for joining us today. As always, please remember to subscribe to the podcast so you don't miss an episode and please share any feedback you have with us via LinkedIn or on our Twitter account at inner underscore plant. Thanks for listening.